You can't replace part of the brain. Like, you treat them the same. The source of truth for the medtech industry. Coexists with the province. Robot understands things automatically. Number one show in the medtech industry. So Stryker got ahead of that and changed in the 90s, built a billion dollar company that helped apply a lot of things. State of medtech with your host, Omar M. Khatib. What's up, Medical Sales Nation? Welcome back to the show. Do you like that, Medical Sales Nation? I like the ring of that. I do like the ring of that, right? Well, as as always, we, we had a little bit of a break, you know, but we're back to our Presence Club series. Before I talk, tell you about our guest today, um, please, if you won Presence Club, you hit quota, um, you know somebody who who you would love to hear, please shoot me a message. I'm always looking for these stories because there are people in this industry who have some somehow through hell and high water hit quota, got into President's Club. They have a story. They have a formula of success. So today I am so excited to bring on our guest, Lynn Powers. Now, Lynn is not actually from our industry. Lynn is from the software industry. She works for a company called Clary. Clary is one of the sponsors of this podcast. And the reason why I picked Clary is because one of my missions is to change how we sell and market in this industry. What Clary does is that they're a revenue intelligence platform. So if you have Salesforce as a CRM, you really should consider using Clary because what Clary does is it helps automate data entry into Salesforce. That way it makes your reps lives more easier. And then it's their AI platform goes into your Salesforce CRM and pulls the data to kind of give you insights as to which deals you should be working, um, which deals need more more time, and then even predict revenue. They, they have this famous uh, case study. I think there's a company that did about uh, $2 billion in revenue per year, and Clary was able to predict their revenue within about $100,000, which is unbelievable, right? It's an amazing product. Check the show notes below to learn more or go to Clary, C-L-A-R-I.com, book a demo, learn more about them. Uh, it's an amazing platform. I feel like every sales team should have this, especially if you want to start doing revenue collaboration and governance as a team sport. That way, marketing, customer success, clinical, and sales are all on the same page working together versus, you know, let's face it, most of the time we're not like bragging about our CRM. So, Lynn Powers has hit multiple presence clubs. She's been in the software industry for quite some time now. And so the reason why I want to have her on is because there's a certain uh, type of approach that SaaS, which is for those who are not familiar, software as a service, take when it comes to selling. And I think that Lynn's approach and her discipline is noteworthy and definitely transferable to a lot of what we do in the medical device industry. So that's our episode today. Now, a couple of other shout outs um, aside from Clary. One thing that we all can agree on is finding early adopters is difficult. It's one of the most important things when it comes to launching a new product or even a new company. The problem, though, is, is that it's really hard to do that, right? It's not, look, it's not as simple as you going on PubMed and finding who's, you know, published the most papers. A lot of times, if you talk to most companies, their best adopter for a new technology is usually somebody they never thought of, right? So how do you find those people? Well, data is the best answer. The problem, though, is that a lot of databases that have this information around like procedure volume, prescription behavior, uh, all, all the kind of things you need to target, number one, they cost a lot of money. Um, so that's problem number one. So that's a big problem for your startup. If you're a well-funded company, um, the next problem is that they're kind of clunky. They're a little difficult to use. Even me as a marketer, a lot of times when I would use these databases, they just felt like I needed like a degree in data science to actually use them. And a lot of times it didn't help me 
find the right adopters. This is why I partnered with a company called Alpha Sophia, A-L-P-H-A-S-O-P-H-I-A.com. Alpha Sophia is a great platform specifically designed for startups, but of course, a lot, a lot of large companies use them. They have a database where it shows you procedure volume, behaviors on prescriptions, and even things such as which social media channels a physician uses. So for me, when I'm looking for adopters, even actually uh, when I work with clients, like there's a current surgical robotics company I'm, I'm helping out, I use Alpha Sophia not only to target who does the most procedures, but also I start looking at, at who has an active Twitter account, who has an active LinkedIn account, because as they adopt, that's a key channel to drive awareness of the product. So if you want to learn more about Alpha Sophia, go to alphasophia.com forward slash Omar and you get three free searches right? You're going to get a demo, but in that demo, they're going to ask you, Hey, like what kind of surgeons or physicians are you targeting? What are you looking at? And they're going to give you three free searches. And the best part is this, here's the price transparency. No matter whether you're a multi-billion dollar company or a small startup, if you decide to use them, they only cost 300 bucks a month. That's it. It's really cheap. It's really, really cheap. You know, so it's, it's really transparent on their pricing. Great product. Go check them out. Now, with that being said, Let's get on to our episode with the one and only Lynn Powers. Enjoy. Welcome back to the show, everybody. And today, great episode. I'm excited about this because this is the first one we're doing, you know, where we have somebody from the SaaS world come on the show. Um, there's a lot of things. So I give the SaaS AEs a lot of hard time, but I can't give them a hard time about their robustness in terms of how they manage a pipeline. There's a lot of things we can learn about that. So, of course, when I thought about who I should have on the show, there's a lot of people that came to mind. But I kept hearing Lynn Powers. You know, as you know, I'm a partner of Clary. And Tyler Price, who's the growth market over there, was like, man, you got to have Lynn Powers on because she's just absolutely amazing. She just crushes it. And I've never heard somebody talk about an, uh, uh, um, a salesperson like that. So Lynn Powers, who is the – you just literally told me this uh, – uh, account director for, for enterprise sales, right? I know I messed that one up. Enterprise yeah. account director at Clarity. Enterprise Labs. account director. Because, you know, see, my med tech mind is trying to translate what that is into our world. So for, for our world, that would be essentially a territory manager. But essentially, you're dealing with really large enterprise accounts. And again, at Clary, at least from what I've heard, you're dealing with the most important strategic initiative. So maybe bef before we dive into it, um, tell us a little bit about your job at Clary, what you focus on. And I have to just point it out. But gotta respect the swag. Tell us about this, like, cause you know this show we love like uh, presidents club winners, uh, sales club winner, everything. Tell us about the 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 uh, the trophies you have behind you. My Vanity Fair behind me. Um, I so love it. I am, as Omar mentioned, I'm an enterprise account director at Clary. Um, I've also been our top performing rep for the past four years. So you'll see some Clary awards behind me president's club every year. Um, and one of the main reasons why I think I'm so successful in this role is because one, um, a big part of being a SaaS seller is being able to drive long-term value for your customer. And so as an enterprise account director, I'm responsible for leading the charge on the most strategic accounts at Clary. And so we'll dive into that a little bit more today of what that actually means and, and how we do that. But um, the main goal of what I'm trying to do is obviously similar to any seller, we have a quota to hit, but it's a matter of how we're driving that revenue within our territories and within the accounts that we have. That's awesome. That's awesome. So maybe like a, like a quick little dive in, like, tell us a little about you, like, where'd you grow up? How did you get into SaaS? You know, how'd you get to where you are today? If you can just give, you know, a couple minutes on, on that and, and then we'll, we'll dive in and talk shop. 
Yeah. So I'm actually from like the part of California that no one ever goes to, which is like the armpit of Central Valley. Um, but I did, I moved over to the Bay Area throughout college and um, really wanted to focus my career specifically around tech. And so what brought me to tech is both my parents worked my entire childhood in tech, um, building the land of floppy disks to CDs. And so when I got into tech, it became from storage to cloud software, which was like a really fun transition. So coming out of college, um, I worked at my first kind of taste of tech was working at a company that was similar to Venmo. It was called Clinkle. And then coming out of there, I knew that I wanted to work at a Fortune 500 company to gain the rapport and the network um, to be a successful seller in tech. And so I went to Oracle, spent some time at Oracle before and moving. You were there uh, when when CRM had gone from on-premise to SaaS, correct? Yeah. So and it was the big shift of what was happening in the database world, more specifically around, hey, like we don't need to have on-site storage systems like we can do all this in the cloud yeah and just uh, i want to just like touch on this just for the salespeople who don't understand wh what that is is that back in the day and it was really oracle and then this company called siebel system which was i think they're the fastest company to a billion dollars like people think it's slack it's actually siebel systems where crms customer ma uh, relationship management systems were all built with these data warehouses like on site. So it was like a huge project, it took a whole year to do and everything. And then along came a guy named Mark Benioff who created Salesforce and did this whole thing about, oh, this should all be CRM in the cloud. And even had like like a fake protest at Oracle's like uh, CRM conference yeah. back in the early 2000s and everything. And that was, yeah. yeah, and, that, and that, was, that was the big shift. So now like everything's in the cloud. So that, that I just want to provide that context, but please kind of continue. Yeah, so I was I was at least aware of hey, this is a shift that's happening in the market. It's going to go eventually all cloud from like what my innovation in my head and what I was pitching at the time was leaning towards. And so me being the seller that I was, I I kind of took a personality read on like what would be my ideal personal um, love for pitching to somebody and sales is something that I hold near and dear to me in terms of process people and technology. And so I wanted to be able to join a company that also was aligned with how does pre people process and technology impact sales leaders today and every everyone from um, I like to say from the boardroom all the way down to a BDR or business development rep or someone that's helping you and on the sales team prospect. And that's what led me to Cleary and where I am today. So that's a Fantastic. little bit about my story, but generally you are Silicon Valley girl. <laughs> Got it. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, you know, so something maybe if you can, you know, I think a, f a good first step to explain to the audience is, you know, while I do, I'm not going to lie, I do, I do give the, the, the software salespeople a hard time because it is like a, a nice luxury, but there's a reason for this. So in the medical sales world, um, most reps are like full, they're almost like full cycle sales person plus a marketing person. Yeah. So uh, a, a rep will often, let's say in the morning, go cover cases, uh, bring trays, bring the technology and everything. And then at, in the afternoon, they have to go prospecting on their own. Then they have to do demos. 
um, you know, from A to Z, from from the prospecting to the demo to the training to the customer success. And sometimes they, depending on how large the companies, they have some help, but they do everything. In SaaS, though, you guys really segment the sales process off. And if you can go from like BDR, yeah. SDR all the way to close, like what are the different roles and why is it like that? Yeah, so I will say it is kind of broken up, but the way that I like to think about it is in terms of like, what is the go-to-market um, value that we're trying to drive? And so if you think about at all stages of a funnel of a sales cycle, what are those cross-functional partners that might be involved from the SaaS world? So to start off, you engage initially with either an SDR, BDR, there's lots of different acronyms for it. But basically what it is, is a development rep. They're going to go farm the territory for you and try to generate conversations, generate leads for you, prospect those leads, try to get them to convert to actual opportunities. And so that's kind of your forefront process. Now that heavily is engaged with different aspects of marketing. And when we think of marketing, um, there's kind of two levels to think of it in a SaaS world. They both will roll up to different types of leaders. And so your marketing um, help or cross-functional assistance will come underneath the CMO and all of you as a sales generating folk um, would come from actions on the CRO end. And now where these cross-functional things start to um, crisscross is things like events. Driving events is going to be something that is led by marketing. However, us as a seller are driving our customers, our prospects, our clients directly to some of those events. Um, now, in other efforts, you can say account-based marketing, for example, um, is one way that the marketing team will engage on more strategic pursuits. Now, what does account-based marketing mean is I'm making customized web pages for my clients. I'm making um, swag that has both of our logos on it. I'm creating a general event just for one specific customer, one specific prospect. I'm being very diligently um, crafting that with marketing. And so um, there's other ways that we can, I can throw out an idea to marketing or my account-based marketing um, counterpart, and then we will be able to work on something collaboratively together. Now, how, how are you able to, let me ask you this, how, like when you pitch, cause like, so again, like just, this is kind of fun. Cause like, I don't actually talk about this, but I think it's good for both of us, but also for the audience. So in our world, like what, what often happens, unfortunately, marketing is not a revenue driving function. Most of marketing is usually product management product, which is what marketing likes to live. And then a couple times a year, they do marketing as a hobby when they go to a conference. Yeah. So marketing is very much seen as like a service organization of sales. So sales will go to marketing and say, oh, I want this brochure. I want this. And they make a lot of demands. Sometimes they do ask for specific events and marketing kind of, you know, gripes about it. Um, but I think for account-based marketing in our world, which is terrible, that's actually Tyler Pleiss came on the show to talk about this. Um, Usually it's like they're going to sort of try and run some ads to target one account and raise some awareness and that helps the seller get in, which yeah. is not real account-based marketing. For you, what do you think, what, what's your advice to sellers, both SaaS and MedTech, if they're going to go and pitch marketing on an ABM target, like what, what, what do you have to have in order to justify a certain account to go you know, after ABM, let's say you do ABM for, let's say a Striker or Johnson and Johnson or Medtronic for your world. Yeah. How would you justify it to marketing aside from this is a really big account? Yeah, no, that's a really great question because we do have criteria that needs to align to marketing to be able to leverage those resources, right? So the number one thing that we look at is propensity to buy, which in our world, 
um, when you're thinking of your ideal customer profile, right? Like what is my typical buyer look like or the intent to buy from a certain type of account? I go and look at the types of things as like uh, the challenges that they might be encountering, the current tech stack that they might have today that I might be going after to rip and replace or to consolidate and help them not compromise on functionality. And when I'm doing that, there's a few things that need to cross off the boxes for marketing. One is um, they have a high propensity to buy. They are one of my top accounts that I'm pursuing. And then the other one is we have active either engagement or we have some type of alignment with an executive like um, persona. So whether there's interest, we don't know. That's what we're trying to drive together, but at least some type of either awareness or um, engagement with a leadership. Got it. That makes that makes a lot of sense. So after the SDR and BDR side, and again, you can deploy account-based marketing, which is in conjunction with marketing SDRs. What's the next step when it comes to a SaaS pipeline? Yeah. So the next step would be digging into how are you converting that? What are those cross-functional partners you're working with in the convert phase? And so for me, it looks like a couple different things. One, the main primary thing you're going to do while you're converting pipeline is looking at how you're bridging familiarity. So they might either have um, a process embedded today, or they might have technology they're using for that today, or maybe they're looking to innovate it because it's too slow or it's outdated or it's stale of the way that they're looking at the actual data and um, making insights and deliverables on it. One way that we do that in converting the pipeline is bridging cross-functional relationships. So I like to call this like title matching. So say I've engaged with a chief revenue officer. I want to pair that with my chief revenue officer so they can level set on priorities and what that actually means for their go-to-market function and like really level set from a um, experience perspective. The other thing that I like to dig into is understanding relationships and what does that do in a trickle effect in a deal. So for example, I like to think of all of my opportunities as having three buyers, three different objectives of why they would buy. And so as I'm building that out, I need to understand one cross-functionally who might be able to help me demo through um, those three champions that I'm trying to create. So usually a technical person, um, there's probably some type of security review involved. Um, there's usually some type of product knowledge, um, deeper dive that we want to go into. And so that can cross a number of cross-functional partners like sales engineering team is one. Another one could be a customer reference, right? So again, building those relationships, trying to title match. The other one that you can start to pull into would be like a value engineering team or how are we generating value or quantifying the value that we're actually creating for the customer or for the client and, and understanding two things. One, what would be the cost if they didn't go forward with your solution, but also from like a consultative perspective, like what, what are they doing today and what they should look to change and what value would that drive for them? So um, when I think about that next funnel of the process, after you've actually engaged with the prospect, you've created an opportunity with them. Now we're trying to work through um, the nuts and bolts of what an actual deal would look like and construct that with them. That's a lot of the co-authoring cross-functionally that would happen. Got it. You know, um, 
at what point, like, so right now at Clary, do you, when you go through a demo, do you do it yourself? Do you have a sales engineer? Can you kind of talk the audience through like, one is like, so a sales engineer is an actual engineer, but that works with sales on the more technical side of the demo. Can you explain that role and like, why, like, when would you pull the trigger on saying, I need a sales engineer on this, on this uh, demo? Yeah. So there's two usual ways that we would pull in a sales engineer. And again, I've, I've seen this play out at a couple different companies of the way that they engage sales engineers. So it could vary for a bunch of different companies. I'll caveat with that. Um, but one way that a sales engineer, you would think about engaging them is I would typically demo kind of early stage opportunities. So low hanging fruit, lower down on the power line. We like to think of the power line as anything above the power line would be director level and above anything below the power line is um, director level and below. So rep, director, manager, anything like that would be below the power line above is VP, SVP, GVP, um, chief level would be above the power line. And depending on who the persona is, I would take the demo versus doing it with an engineer. Um, the engineer will come with a couple different areas of perspective that would vary from mine. One being technical architecture, security related um, functionalities, and then maybe some of those custom ones that are unique to a, a customer that maybe they've seen play out at other customer accounts. Something that I might not be able to see from like my lens of just trying to pitch and sell customers. Mm. Um, the other one is like what value we're driving within process. So a lot of the work that we do with sales engineers are really consultative around their revenue and how are they thinking about their cadences? How are they thinking about how they're forecasting the methodologies that they want to apply? And that's usually where a sales engineer would come in as well to help understand, hey, what ways are you doing this today or what ways are you trying to achieve this and how we can help? Got it. Got it. And then at that point, like when you get uh, past that point or towards close, is it still you working the deal? Do you have somebody else that helps like towards the end? What does that look like? Yeah. So in the close phase, usually that's um, deal desk partnership or implementation partnership, customer success partnership. It's really, again, thinking about the the primary difference in SaaS is it's a long-term journey with a customer, right? So you're always going to be up for renewal, especially if it's a subscription business, you're even in the thick of it more. So if it's a consumption business, because you need to drive the actual revenue that's going to generate. Mm. Um, so those are two things to think about when you are working in that closed phase. Let me walk through kind of how you would engage with those cross-functional partners. Like deal desk is one um, deal desk is going to help you structure your actual deals structure. What might be good benefits for the company. Uh, no, so it's a team. So your deal desk team would be looking at pricing, um, how that pricing is reflected across other customers that look like that. And what might be some offers that you can consider when pitching your opportunities, um, kind of order documents or your pricing to somebody. So that's within deal desk. Um, the other one that you would work with on kind of that closing would be your manager, or kind of frontline leadership they would help you coach around, hey, what strategies could you embed within your actual close process? What are you actually driving in terms of strategic initiatives, urgency around the strategic initiatives, alignment with the executive buyer, that sort of thing. 
And then the third piece being implementation and customer success. So as you think about the customer journey, right when you're at the end of it, when I'm going to start to make them a customer, want to embed them as I like to think of them as like a power user, like how do I educate them to be a power user? would then be teaching them what is that implementation process, understanding not only are we gonna need some timelines around this, but like what are milestones that we want to co-author together to metric around what is success for both of us throughout the implementation. So I usually um, introduce implementation, introduce some of those processes. That way we can start to think about long-term value. How do we quantify what is valuable? How do we engage with who needs to be a part of that process to help quantify that value long-term. And then the last piece being customer success and support. So as um, a SaaS seller, there's two kind of different things that happen with subscription sales. One being be a part of a pre-sales process or pre-sales motion where it's new business. We're just trying to generate a new logo. The second piece being post sales, where we're focusing on things like upsell, cross sell initiatives, leveraging products, driving adoption around products. And so those sellers are are typically measured a little bit differently. So they can be measured on adoption or they could be measured on um, the use of cross selling products or the use of different products within their portfolio. But the way that I would typically engage with customer success within that customer sales journey is like, hey, long term, um, I'm going to be passing this account over to a customer success manager who then will be responsible for managing that relationship long term and helping with any type of support tickets or um, different functionality within the product that they might need changes to. Got it. That makes sense. And by the way, just for for context, when you say new logo, that means like like a completely new customer, right? And I think what's interesting about the SaaS world is like for at least in med device, you know, um, for us, you know, for it depends on what's being sold. But if you look at the world of capital equipment, which is the world of like really expensive stuff, you have like the hardware that's purchased, but then the consumables, right? But for the most part, once you're in the hospital, you're in. But you have to always find ways to drive adoption and everything. The thing that's interesting about SaaS is that you can have a multi-million dollar deal one year, but then when that renewal comes up, they can just drop you. You know, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think this is, um, in my opinion, like why SaaS. You know, right now we're in like the SaaS apocalypse. You know, it's like twenty twenty to twenty twenty one ish or so, or twenty twenty two. A lot of money went to SaaS, and a lot of SaaS companies competed, but they re- they sell to each other because it's just. SaaS, SaaS has a huge margin. So it's like, yeah, we'll adopt this, you know, platform or tech this year. And if not, we'll drop it from our tech stack next year. Now it's like, you need to get into more um, stickier businesses like financial services, banking, and then of course, healthcare, because like in my world, when a healthcare company, medtech, biotech, et cetera, adopts something like software related, like that's it. Like when they're not changing, you know? Um, but then again, like that comes with its own, own, own issues. But I think it's interesting that you guys have, such a focus on like it's almost like the sale really begins once the adoption has happened because it's like okay now we got to start working a year in advance to make sure that the renewal happens and they use more of it right because that's how you make more money right right the other thing is like how do we drive adoption or power users within that because just as much as you think about a um kind of the old school way of buying you're like hey we're gonna buy this tech one time and this is a one and done forever um same process goes with those users right so like if they're accustomed to using a certain type of technology 
the likelihood that they're going to go to a different company in the next five years is pretty high within the SaaS world. And so um, they'll be able to go to the next company and, and want to use that same product the same way. And so um, there's more benefits, I feel like, in the SaaS world to some of these, but it's based off of person, not really account, right? And um, one of the interesting parts that you just brought up too was thinking about long-term, what do those milestones look like in order to engage with the customer to get them stickier? So the way that we like to think of that is, hey, here's implementation. Now what's the handoff to success? And how are we checking in with our customer on a regular basis to achieve certain milestones that we had agreed to at the pre-sales process? And so what we look like to think of that as is, an executive business review where we look at metrics such as adoption or um, what what areas of the product are they using today that they would like to see more use out of and dialing in on how they're leveraging the tool less of like if they're using the tool so driving again process around technology to then benefit the people got it got it as a seller how important is it for you to since you have that interplay with like customer success, right? Because obviously what helps you sell more is one of the, is the customer increases their usage, but also that helps you with, with success stories. Cause it's like, Oh, great. I have this great customer success story. I can use them as a testimony or a reference when I sell to somebody else throughout the year. Do you check in with customer success or how, how do you as a seller make sure that uh, customer success is doing their job to drive more usage? Cause as a seller, do you get, do you, do A's get paid more if usage goes up or is it just mainly on commission where once the deal's closed, you get paid commission, you move on to the next thing? Yeah. Usually it's um, two different ways. So in some organizations I've been a part of, um, you'll have the opportunity to just sell it as a new logo. And once it's a new logo, you pass it off to another team to handle the post-sale side. And other organizations I've been a part of, you own both sides of the spectrum. So you're generating not only new revenue, but you're making sure that the customer is satisfied and you're getting um, additional growth within that account. The way that you're paid, again, it depends on the company, but ways that I've seen it happen is if you're doing um, an expansion on users or uh, an expansion on product, that's where you would get additional commission off of if it's already an existing customer, um, where as the adoption and how you use it, it could also depend on the product. So you could, um, I like to think of it like imagine DoorDash, right? Like you land a restaurant account, but like there's nothing that happens until there's actually orders that are coming in and out of that. And so it could be a model where you land the logo, but unless they go and hit a certain number or a certain threshold, you actually don't make money until that happens. And so depending on the product, the way that the product is used and kind of the way the teams are broken up, you can have variations of this happen. But what I would just knowledgeable transfer is um, usually it's you start with an account, you close the account, depending on type of product or either increasing utilization around how they use it around process or the way that they're actually leveraging it across their people. And then from there you can gain upsell, cross sell, and then renew. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. What, what do you think? I mean, this is a very like laid back podcast. So like, just, you know, like, you know, let, let it rip, but what, what, what are some things that you see 
SaaS salespeople doing that you're just like, it drives you nuts. Like, like if you were to give some advice, you know, like for me, like one, one, like perfect example from our world in the med rep world is like, you're only as good as your last at bat. And so like, you know, things that make me crazy with reps is like when they don't do a good job following up and checking in on their accounts or anything, they just assume like, Oh yeah, the order is going to come in next month. It's like, man, nothing's guaranteed anymore. Like, yeah. you know, like you're like, you're, you're like one bad day away from like losing your account. So that's like yeah. something on my end. But for you, like when you see, you know, SaaS sellers, especially like new people starting out, what, what kind of drives you nuts? You're like, you should really not do this. Oh, mine is like feature pitching. I hate it so I, much. Like, <laughs> Yeah, all of my competitors that. i feel like sell that way and so buyers are used to being like just show me what it does just show me what it does and i'm like but why would it matter what it does it's like how you use it and so it's like my biggest pet peeve in the industry is like a lot of people will anchor on hey look at what look at what it does in this screen or like see what what happens when you toggle this thing here it's like that doesn't matter I hate like, it. what are like what does it serve and like how is it going to bring me in more money is like so the question i like to answer <laughs> no i'm so happy you said because like so on um look one of my business ventures i i co-founded a SaaS company that is actually it's like specifically for salespeople, but it's for uh like creating automating scheduling like linkedin content um and like a creator community and so a lot of times when i do a demo somebody is always like oh like but you don't have this feature or that feature from like this other company or you don't have this and i always ask them like i'm like it's a great point we don't have this i'm like what are you going to use that for so i don't yeah. even say like you're not going to use it. i ask them like what do you th what are you going to use that for and usually when they're like oh that light bulb goes on I'm like i don't use that it's like yeah exactly so it's like pointless yeah, but yeah i kind of hate that that's that style of selling which is just like feature dumps it's just like you know <laughs> yeah the other one that is a big one for me is like um i love roi right return on investments and like just helping f people figure out like how they're going to get upticks in like you usage or pipeline metrics or they get some type of value gain right um but the way that people go about roi is like oh you're gonna receive like two thousand percent of <laughs> of use in this and it's like dude that's so unrealistic and so the way that i like to think about roi is how can i help generate change within the environment that i'm in with an account and what change does that actually drive to strategic initiatives that they're mapping for the overall company? And so if you mm. double set on that type of conversation, it's a lot more telling of, hey, here's how we're going to be partners together long term and continue to work together to achieve certain milestones versus like, I'm going to throw you a like wild, crazy percentage and hope that you and I can eventually achieve that over the course of our relationship. Like it's very salesy and I feel like people use it as like a checkbox. Like, yes, we went through a return on investment, like what we would eventually gain by using your product. But I think the reality of it now with the market shifting and being so budget conscious today and being so convoluted with point solutions is... How are we actually going to generate value or ge generate change within your organization and measure it effect effectively and efficiently throughout our relationship together? No, absolutely. I, I absolutely agree. And I think like, at least in our world, that happens when, you know, a sales usually like, so the rep that I described, that's usually like implants and other things. When it comes to like a capital sale, you have a salesperson who focuses on the actual deal. And they don't step in the operator. Usually it's clinical sales afterwards, but that person might 
overpromise on a lot of things, especially when it's new technology. And then that customer success or clinical sales team is left with like, you know, like a, 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 a solution. Yeah. yeah, just but essentially like they have to clean up a lot of a lot of mess because uh, the salesperson like made all these promises and it didn't and then it didn't uh, happen. I think I don't know about in I, I know in SaaS there's G two which is a big review side and everything. In our world, like if you make a promise to a physician and you don't deliver on that. Yeah, they they will go f like really far out of the their way to destroy you. Yeah, like they'll they'll go they'll go far. They'll call their friend. They'll go you know they'll come to your booth at a conference yeah. and make a scene. The like I is done. Yeah, for the a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Maybe you know if we can shift like a little bit more on the on the deal management. So like I saw you, we we've been connected, but I've you know met you for the first time at Dreamforce at Clary's event for Charge, and you're on a really interesting panel. I really love the way you think about like pipeline and pipeline pipeline management. There's so many different things to cover on there, but like what what do you think is the most undervalued? area of pipeline management that most sellers don't pay attention to, but you feel like that's like an extremely important place to increase uh, pipeline velocity. Yeah. Uh, How many times do I say pipeline? I know, right? <laughs> so one of the, one of the biggest ones I see as like missed opportunity, I think is what you're thinking through um, is the break that happens between closing a sale and implementing a sale. So it's this fun window where vendor of choice has been chosen now we're deep in the midst of commitments on the opportunity now we're trying to deliver that um my most favorite wins in my history of clarity are the ones that i sat really close to procurement was like call me when like whatever they promised you starts to break because it almost happens with every single competitor i'm up against and it's always in one fashion or another but based on the vendor, I can kind of tell when it's going to start to break or when there might be frustrations that start to brew. And the number one part of a sale where you can still leverage your momentum, even though you didn't win, you can still validate like all of the value that you were trying to prove in comparison and still have it have that really sensitive window of execution because they can commit to another product, but what if you know the outcome is not going to get to where they want to go? And so if you sit really closely with them as they build and those frustrations brew, it's a lot easier to do a takeout or a rip and replace while they're still in implementation versus waiting the two years to the next contract deadline or the renewal happens with that vendor. Now I'm spending the next two years fighting around how to rip and replace it. Versus like, it was never going to start to begin with. And like, we just get really creative together as partners. And so um, some of my biggest deals has happened in those ways where they've gone to two different vendors, three different vendors. And I just sit really, really closely to them as they try to stitch together point solutions and know that I can just easily not have them go through that. And so it's, I think it's a missed opportunity because so many people close out an opportunity and they're like, all right, we're done. Like I didn't win. It wasn't, it wasn't my win. And like, we move on. But if you leverage your momentum in the right way, it could garnish you a sale, even when you didn't think you had a sale. When yeah, this is why you're crushing it is because yeah. like, you don't, you don't 
like you don't th- you don't throw it into close loss so easily. I think that a lot of sellers, um, it's very tempting. Like even me with my own company, I don't. I mean, I still sell, yeah. But like last year, like I was the one taking. I did 150 calls. I think I don't know. It was a lot. <laughs> but, but I think a lot of times, you know, it's so easy to be like, oh, like to get frustrated and be like, this is a waste of my time. But I think like in the buying process, especially when like high dollars are are at stake being just patient and letting things play out just really benefits you a lot as a seller. And I think part of it, like, I don't know, I've always believed that if no matter what you're selling, whether it's SaaS or MedTech or anything else, if you don't have a good pipeline, like you get needy and then you're more likely to do like reactive things, like put something in closed loss or put too much pressure on deal versus if you have a good pipeline and you know how to work leads, but also prospect yourself, then it's like, okay, you know what, this, this deal is going to wants to evaluate some other options. Cool. I'm going to give them that time. In the meantime, I'll work these other deals and then check in on them. And I think there's a balance there in terms of your time. Yeah. You know, I just feel like you, like, uh, I joke with my wife about this all the time. And she always, she always reminds you like, you're going to get more with patience than with force, you know, that's such a good, it's such a good, um, concept too, because one of two things will happen is your conversion rate, especially like in enterprise sales, if you only have the two deals that you're working and you're already up against it, like a 12 month, 15 month cycle, you're shooting yourself in the foot if it doesn't go right, right? Like you need to have totally. uh, and then and then at that cycle, to convert. Yeah. And then at the end of at, at that renewal, the other thing that you have to consider, I would imagine, is that like you're not the only one who knows about that renewal. So it's like yeah. now you're dealing with everybody else versus I really like that that um approach by the way which is like working with procurement when th- when they start getting frustrated there's this pain that's probably the like point where they are most most persuadable right well and the other the part is, is like walked them. them through what your implementation would look like and the expectations that you would set as a partner for them and if they're looking at what they're going through and they're like this is totally not what we wanted to sign up for and the way that lynn described this to us the way that lynn walked us through this is really how a partner should be. Again, I'm not thinking of this as like a product. It's like process and people with technology. What do we serve together? And if that if things don't align, then why is that the direction that you're heading on? And like, mm-hmm. especially in my world where we're working with revenue executives, you can't afford to miss a forecast in some of these really large companies. Like it's it's kind of like your name on the chopping block if that's the case right like if you do a a swing and it's like 200 percent, like you are way off where you don't have enough product to then go fulfill the orders what are you going to be doing and so um i think it's a multitude of things of like hey like how can i proceed with the confidence that i've already delivered and not waste my time on the meetings that i did do to pull in all those resources to get it across the line if i did hit a closed loss it's it's now that we're in the thick of it, how can I win you back off of the commitments that other people are not meeting? No, that makes complete sense. No, that makes complete sense. And probably a really good segue into like, you know, we've had, we have some good rapport going on. Let's hear some war stories. I want to hear some war stories. Yeah. Right? Like, like, tell me, tell me, a, I don't know, you mentioned some rip and replace deals. Like what are some What's some wild deals that you close, you know, where you can pinpoint it to like a specific moment? Cause this look, Oh yeah. I tell the audience all the time, like sales is a process. It's not a singular event. There's usually, you know, it's not like the movies where it's just like one thing, Yeah. but like, let's have a little bit of fun tell us some stories. Yeah. Man. 
So there's two that are like my absolute favorites and my two largest deals. Um, I can go one of two ways, but um, the first one that I will tell is one of my favorites. They were in a position from a tech stack perspective where it was a red on my list to be completely honest with you. Like I marked it as on my account list is like, they cannot buy, like they don't have the right, they're not a technical fit for us. There would be, I would have to move mountains to get this account across the line. But it was to the point of the year where I was like, I was desperate for like, where else can I generate pipeline? Like I want a full pipeline to look at to convert. And I was starting to double tap on all of those red doors just to see like what would, you know, like how, how much can we turn a rock at this place? Is it a leadership thing? Is it like a tech thing? Like what makes them a no? And I just did some socialization around the executive team. There was new leadership that started. Typically when you get new leadership, they're a little bit warmer to change because they're trying to prove value right up front upon joining a company. And so I got the ear of one of those executives and, and tried to entertain him with like, okay, say that you just started completely fresh with the tech stuff. Cause like I, they couldn't buy Clary the way that they were set up. So it's like, I would have to sell you on not only what Clary is capable of, but all of the things that would set up Clary for success that you don't have. And so I kind of sold the implementation plan of like somebody, another vendor in order to get Clary in on top of ripping and replacing three other vendors that were already in incumbents there. And not to add um, fire to any of this, but typical enterprise engagements in the SaaS world are anywhere from like six to 12 months, usually 18 months in like really strategic accounts. It's very um, much like a deal sales in our world. Yeah. And in this deal, think of like my largest account, okay, um, generating me the most revenue in 12 business days. And so I like did this monstrous deal that was um, very, very strategic in how I went about it. And it was very difficult to come across every stakeholder within a 12-day sprint, um, let alone have the rapport and the technology to provide them the confidence to move forward. So that's probably like my favorite story because I had to do so much work with so many different teams in a really short amount of time. But again, um, leaning on the process that I have for myself and the way that I engage with my clients kind of speaks to the testament of like why they're so successful now as a customer looking back and saying, wow, we did that together. So um, a lot of it is Again, getting in the weeds of what exists today, what is your process, why are you not willing to change? But that's one of my worst stories because there was no, it was one of those accounts where it's like, I would literally have to move mountains and get them to buy like not only us, but um, a new CRM, like, which is kind of crazy. Oh, that in is order, crazy. In you order to implement Clary and, and they did so. So it was. Why, why do you think that happened? What do you think you specifically did? Well, I think there's, there's a need for change in a lot of these organizations because they don't have the visibility that they need, right, in order to accelerate the business. And so if you're thinking about these multi-billion dollar companies that there's tons of sellers, like over hundreds, thousands of sellers, think about an executive going to find the one rep that might have the deal that's going to swing the entire quarter. 
it's probably impossible and you're probably filtering off of some report that has just pipeline dollars and it doesn't tell you anything about the actual health of a deal or how it's trending or um, different indicators that might lead to success. And so one of the opportunities that I had with them was just showcasing like, look, this is not, this is a really important process and there should be a way that you scientifically are able to double down on your bets and feel confident about what that looks like. And so I think that's why they were so lenient to change. The other thing is like a lot of old school technology doesn't provide you those insights in real time. So then from like an operational perspective, when you're driving analytics or you're driving those types of behaviors from an enablement standpoint, you can't get that unless change basically changes required <laughs> to, to, to be able to adapt to this new wave of selling, which is how can we be really dialed in on history of an account? You can't just keep going to door knock at the same place and say the same thing. Like it, that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And, um, being very intelligent about how you use the data effectively in front of a customer and the rapport that you have cross-functionally. Like if my um, BDR goes and chases after account and I just met with them at Dreamforce, right? Like we need to have the same talk tracks and be aware of the same activity. Otherwise, like it just doesn't look right in this landscape anymore. Like I'm not calling off of a Rolodex anymore where no one's keeping track of who, who messaged to and when it's like, we have to be very cautious about that. And so this particular customer, they were eager to have this digital transformation happen. Um, very old school, like sellers, they didn't have a lot of process. And this new leader that came in was very eager to drive a scalable process that they can then measure around success to know which direction they need to take the company. And so um, leaning in on that executive and again, on those strategic initiatives that he had laid out for himself of success at this company made it a really easy story to tell where then I dove in with tech executives and the, the IT folks that were um, owning a lot of this process before and said, Hey, there's a new way to look at this. It's a business transformation process, but we can partner with you on that. So I think just the eagerness to change into a more digital world was the big one for that one. Interesting. It just sounds like you did a really good job of identifying, like really amplifying the pain and the problem that they have. And then more importantly, having the, uh, the, the internal champion for that, you know? Yeah. The other thing to, to caveat on that too, is it's also important to know what breaks into who, right? So for me, it was, hey, aligning with this executive on what needs to happen in order to define success for himself, but also who's going to help him along the way and at what point in his like next 90 day plan does that start to break or we can't even unturn that rock because it doesn't exist here. So and and this all started with you saying, okay, like this is a this is a red possibly close loss deal, but like let me just go back and just check. And so I, I guess the the part of this theme is like in your mind everything is negotiable and pers and and persuasion can happen. It's just a matter of like finding the right timing. And I think that's I think that's a key thing for a lot of sales is that a lot of times it's not it's not a like hard no. It's usually just like not right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? The other part, I kind of mentioned this earlier too, but it's, it's how do we drive urgency, which is a huge one too, because oh, totally. 
you could have no deal, right? Like in this case, it was like a red account. I had absolutely nothing going for me whatsoever in any of the conversations. I had enough conversations to say there, there's pain, but I didn't have anything to tie the urgency to. And so when I was introduced to this executive and I can say, hey, like, how are you going to do that? Like, what ways are you going to do that? How are you going to achieve that? Again, dialing in on who then is impacted in that um, really helps drive the urgency, but also aligning with strategic initiatives that they might have as an entire company. So, for example, one of the ones that I look at a lot is if you're expanding global footprint or you're expanding product, um, how are you going to do that and how are you going to do that efficiently and be able to measure success around it? A lot of folks don't have the right answers to that or they don't even know where to start in some cases. And so um, figuring out who matters then when they don't have those answers or where they don't sound sophisticated enough to the right executives to answer some of those questions. Yeah. And I think like one of the other things that just you, you kind of highlighted here is just like really understanding um, what's going on, I guess, internally. And then also with that buyer. So like identifying that this is a new executive and again, you can't read their mind, but for the most part, you did a good job of identifying like what, like, I think like the there's a there's a key to selling where you're able to it's like not to get like you know psychological here but it's like all human beings are running away from pain and towards towards pleasure and I guess a lot yeah. of people have they they saw this, I don't know if you watch the show Painkiller um, oh my really god so crazy <laughs> it's really good it's really good I, by the way just just side note I just need to make those are pharma reps those are not med tech med device reps like for us we actually sorry we actually have to know what the hell we're talking about we don't just yeah. like memorize yeah so so it's like we're very different but when, when I saw that I'm like oh man like everybody's gonna think like that like I got a message like oh man aren't those the people that you sell you know your course I'm like no those are pharma reps although I'm sure there's pharma reps who took my course um <laughs> but but anyways people are running away from pain and towards pleasure and I think Think that the more you're able to identify like existing pains for your buyer and like what's the future desired state they're trying to get to and then your product is that vehicle it makes it so much easier for them to understand be like yeah this is like i think there's like there's value in the fact that you you work close to procurement because when they have that pain it's like the pain is at the highest maximum and they're looking for something to solve the pain yeah. and if that means like we're going to like veto this current deal that we're in or this current uh product so you've had a de you've had deals where they've they've already invested into another product and then in the implementation phase they're like this is garbage terrible we're done we're canceling the project and we're moving to clary yeah so this is the second worst that must feel so good i don't know why but that must those, those <laughs> must feel the best i mean they're the best and like the funny part is is it's it's also not it's a personal thing too of like hey i can't get in my head in the course of knowing my engagement with this account because they keep choosing a different vendor. I just have to stay diligent about the value that I provide and what has happened with those vendors in the past with my customers and be able to preach that. And so in this war story in particular, um, the, the initial, my initial proposal, this makes me so happy saying, but like my initial proposal versus the one that I sold was over, um, 8x in size i know it's a lot larger but like wow. if i said the actual x number you would be like holy cow <laughs> and so for me it was like it was worth the wait but at this point in time um i had engaged with them on for over the course of like 
two years. Okay. And both years they chose a different vendor. The second year I was like, look, the last time you chose a vendor that forced you into the second vendor, you're going to have the same experience. And now that you've experienced it one time before, let me lay out both things that you're going to experience. And at what point you would say, I'm going back to Lynn and I need to go figure out if I can make this like financially make sense. Um, the, the one thing that happened in that deal that I think was important was how are they going to continue to mature their tech stack at scale? And as they grew and as they prepared for a public market, that technology solution, while it could be a band-aid for the short term, long term, it was never going to be the solution for that company, just based off the general scale that they have the typical workflows that they encounter. I just knew it wouldn't be satisfied with any of those other vendors. And so staying really, really diligent, not only with my champion, who was a little bit of um, against doing anything whatsoever. He had went to two different vendors. So like even getting him to come back would be like tail behind the legs. Like I'm walking back to Lynn asking for pricing again. Um, but the biggest one for that one was I stayed really, really close to procurement and procurement was very well aware of what our pricing was. It was a lot more than the other vendors. Um, that's probably why they went the other route, but the investment in time that they wasted the first time and then realizing that they could be under the same project again, doing the same mistakes again in the short term, right out of the gate, I was like, okay, if you go with a different vendor, either put a clause in that contract that says by this point in time, I'm going to make sure that like this is the right solution for us. And so even suggesting that um, in competitive cycles of, hey, look, I totally hear you why you would make that decision, just knowing they'll eventually come back. Right. But being confident in what you're saying, like, hey, like, congrats on making vendor of choice to the other competitor. Right. It's going to work out great for you for a certain amount of time. Here's what are some things to keep in mind and at what point in time you should realize that it's really bad. Because if you keep going down that really bad way train of thought, it's only going to trickle into more problems later down the line. So here are the three things that I want you, if you don't remember anything other than my pricing that I shared with you, like here are three things that you should keep in mind of when we should re-engage. And let them not be like the typical pain value solution things. It's like three very tangible things that like why customers have switched. Plug in a reference with, hey, next time you come across this, call Joe at Extreme Networks or call a very specific person at a very specific company that has dealt with this. It becomes a trigger for them of like, if I don't have to come back to Lynn, who can I go call and say, you did this too? Like, did you make this mistake already? And feel confident that like, if I go back to Lynn, I'm not going to look dumb. So um, it's that one's a little bit of a trade, but more of as a seller, I have to feel really confident in my skill to then be able to produce those types of plays and have them be successful. But if you're already losing from a partnership angle and you're like, look, you already went with the other vendor, like, what do you have to lose anyways? Like, you might as well um, make the meal while it's hot is the way that I like to think of it. It's like, it's going to get stale, it's going to get old, and then it's going to be a closed loss opportunity until the next rep gets the account. And like, I'm not willing to wait that long. So it's staying really, really close to the implementation process, but also 
being very, very aware of the challenges, not only that they experience as an organization implementing a new tool, but as another vendor, what are some caveats that you would experience as a competitor? No, that that was amazing, like a mini masterclass. But it's it's so good to hear that too, just because, you know, uh, these deals are complicated and there's a lot of new, I think that's the one thing that you we could all agree on in B2B selling, whether it's software or med tech or biotech or anything else. So there's like a lot, a lot of nuance, right? And so a lot of times we're dealing with different levers that you like you don't know the influence of like and it just as an example like for example just from from your side selling to 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 us right as industry like uh certain companies um you might think that let's say like the vp of sales is the person that's going to be the most influential in deal when in reality like internally in the organization there's like a director of marketing who actually reports directly to the C CEO and that person is the most influential, but you don't know that unless you like really dig in and like pay attention to the nuance of like the meetings you have, like who's showing up to these meetings, who's being handed off, who are you communicating to in email? Um, and I just really love that. And I think like the one, you know, the, the pearl of wisdom I was trying to pull from our, our conversation is like, okay, like Lynn Powers, which by the way, that's a sales name if I've ever heard one. <laughs> What did you say? Win powers. That's right. I was just, I was just saying. I was like, yeah, powers. Lynn rhymes with win. You know? <laughs> but, but the sense, the sense that is like, a, you know, like, if I can, if I can tell a, a medical rep, like, what does it take to be a successful SaaS rep? I think, like, a, you, you, like, there, there are deals that are not really closed loss. They're just like a closed maybe, and you just have to time it the right way. And B, just because you lost a deal in that time period doesn't mean you can't revive it back from the dead. And in your case, like you, you, you made the deal even larger, yeah. you know? And so there's this balance of like persistence and like grit that you have, but at the same time, like an appreciation for like these small nuances of like trying to understand like what's going on internally with the customer and where are they on the journey? And again, like, not like, I don't know, like, I think a monkey can like feature sell. It's like, okay, I got like the best product. I got all these features. Like you don't need it. At that point, you don't need a salesperson. You need like a, an order taker or a cashier, you a know? A robot in these days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. So, sorry, I'm, I'm in I'm in med device. So like we're not at that level yet. <laughs> but <laughs> but just, just to kind of, you know, and again, we really appreciate you spending some time. I know we're going to, well, we definitely want to have you back, right? But um, in in uh, in wrapping up, I got, I got a couple of quick um, rapid fire questions I'd love to ask you if, yeah. if that's okay. So my first question is, what was the most painful thing a mentor, a boss, you know, somebody you look up to told you that made you change for the better? I love this question. Um, it's a great question, right? It's not, really, it's not exactly a rapid fire one, but it, it forced me to think of the first one. If you don't get goosebumps from this, I think anyone should just recheck their ethic mark. Um, I was told that I should consider a new career because I'm a woman and probably not a culture fit for sales jobs. And so that was that one was a fun one. <laughs> Damn. you! And you know what's the best part about that? Whoever told you that, you made them eat their words. Their words, yeah. It's super fun to live in this land of Lynn. Uh, oh. But yeah, I was told that at I one I love the land of Lynn. Yeah. The land of Lynn is a different one. And so I hope they're listening to this and feeling the liturgy oh. these days. But uh, that was probably like the most pivotal comment in my entire career. Like 
Man. I took that and I went on like this crazy spree of like, okay, maybe I should just go look for a different job in a different industry. And like, Omar, I literally went and looked at like, should I be like branding makeup or something? Like, I was like, what do I do? Like, what else would I do? This is like my life. Like, I love what I do. And so I went on this whole tangent of adventure for myself of trying to figure out who I was, what I wanted to do. I landed back at where I started and was like, no, this is what I do. Like, I don't care if I'm female. Like, what does that what, matter? What, what, what I got to ask, I got to dig into this a little bit. I, I'm sorry. I know I said it's yeah. rapid fire. I gotta, this is the first time I'm digging into one of the rapid fire answers. What prompted, what was the preceding conversation about that prompted that, 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 that remark? Honestly, I was the only female on my team and the only one with a full pipeline. And to be honest with you, it just kind of felt like if I didn't exist, everybody else would have really good pipeline. And so it totally made sense why I wasn't a culture fit. I would agree. Um, the thing that I wouldn't agree with would be I am a woman and that's why I'm not a culture fit. No, I'm a very hard worker and... I'm a diligent worker and that's why I have really good deals. And so to all the female sellers out there, you just keep doing what you do best. <laughs> yeah. And like, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a woman, but. But you're I'm a great a ally. <laughs> I know for sure. But here, here's, here's, you know, what, what I would like, if I could be like, uh, not so like politically cracked for a moment yeah. and be a little vulnerable here. So like, um, you know, when I, you know, I mentor a lot of young people and, and for some reason I, I looked at it the other day I have a list and I realized that like maybe 60% or so of like a lot of the sales reps I mentor, like they happen to be female. I don't know why that is. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe like women in their twenties are like a lot more mature and more willing to like seek help than guys. Maybe, I don't know. Or get coached. <laughs> yeah. But the one thing I, that I think that I say is like, like, for example, if you look at me, you know, I'm a brown dude with a beard. I have a certain way of doing things. Like I have a, you know, like a like I have an intense personality, right? And yeah. so that's not going to jive with some people. And I've just kind of come to the conclusion that like, w could that affect my business, my employment? And like possibly, but I I always I have this weird belief where I'm like I'm only going to believe in things that give me power. Yeah. Because like if if let's just say somebody doesn't want to do business with me because of the way I look yeah. right? or because I'm a, because I'm a man or whatever it is like that doesn't give me any kind of power. Right. And so like, I think like, um, my, my, like if I had a, I don't have a daughter, but like it, it for the, for the, for the girls that I mentor, right. Some of them I've, I've told them like, look, unfortunately I was like, you might be in a meeting and you try and contribute and they're going to write you off because you're pretty and young. I was like, but you can't, focus on that. Like, even if that's the case, you can't focus on that because like focus on focusing on that, like, what are you going to do? Make yourself ugly. And like, you know, like, you know, like you can't, yes. you can't control. So, so the, the best thing that you can do that you is, I'm always a big proponent of like, especially I'm, I'm first generation American. Me too. Control, have like focus on things you have control on. And the things you have control on is just being so damn good, just undeniably good undeniably good that like you cannot be ignored and then also at the same time really believe in yourself and again if you're in front of the female reps are, who are listening to this if you're in a situation where you're on a team that that's like that you you should quit and i'm and I, i'm sure my inbox is gonna probably blow up that's okay if you need help 
reach out to me because I'm more than happy to help you land a role at a great company and getting away from a shitty, like backwards job. You yeah, know? I have one plug to that too, Omar. So this is also the same mentor, old person in my career that told me that I can't have these fabulous meals. And if anyone has ever seen me in person, I have like extremely like aggressively loud nails and outfits. And I mean, like you kind of can tell here, I'm like in an orange shirt with an orange headband. Like this is a normal day for Lynn. <laughs> um, but, but one of the things that I like, I say with that is this is the same mentor person in my career that told me, don't do that. Like you should always wear neutral colors. You should always be like the nude nail person. And I was like, that's just, I don't even feel comfortable even in that same, like, yeah. I don't even have to get back to those things. And so I agree with you. Like if you are in that position, know that it's not you, it might be yeah. your person and, and that's okay. Like just feel really confident about you and what you're capable of. The other thing is, um, I'm also, I recently, um, I'm, I'm funneling off of the board of Women in Revenue, but still very highly engaged member at Women in Revenue. We are a nonprofit organization that helps women in revenue generating roles, either get coached, mentored, um, placed at a job, networked with like-minded individuals. And so know that you're not alone. That group is over 8,000 women um, that are in revenue generating roles. So if you need a resource or if you need a small group of home <laughs> to, to debate or live in with this conversation, know that Women in Revenue is a resource for you as well. No, I, no, absolutely. I, I love that. And by the way, if we can just, you got, you got like a little, few yes. more minutes for us. Just, <laughs> I, I made up. like no hard stuff after this for very specific. No, yeah. Just, just to unpack that, because I love what you said. Like, cause yeah, like, yeah, you girl, you got really loud nails, you wear loud outfits, but that's what I love. And that, because I'm like, this person knows who the hell she is and yeah. she's like, she's living it. And, and I say that because, um, 10 years ago when I left, when I left medical school and I started in med device, right. I tried really hard to fit in. Cause I was like, you know, so in my world, it's like black suits, white shirts, like red or blue ties. And I was like, okay, like that's who I have to be. And the more I tried to do that, the more unlike, like that was not my it's personality or character. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and, it, and I sucked at it. And, and then when my career really took off, and again, for better or worse, like I took a lot on the chin because of it. I was like, you know what, that's not me. So like, I grew my beard out. I'm like, I, like I'm wearing, I'm rocking a beard. I'm, I'm sick and tired of this. And I remember my first promotion, um, I had to go to like conferences. And again, that's, those are like conservative, like these are conservative conferences. This is back like 10 years ago. And I was like, you know what? I'm not doing this vanilla ass. I'm going to wear a blue or black suit. So <laughs> I went to, I went and got the flyest suit. I got a iridescent dark plum suit. It's yes. got like subtle baby blue pinstripe on it. And then when I, when I walked in, like my VP of sales, my late mentor, Chris sells, who you would have loved him. He would have loved the hell out of you. He, he passed away a couple years ago. Aww. He walks up to me and he touches the suit. He's like, God damn, Katie, this is a nice suit. I'm like, thanks sales. And I remember when I walked into that conference, like, I was like, I'm going to own this. And I was like 26, 27 years old. And everybody's like, like, dude, who, like, is that a, like is that a guy that works room, for a med tech you know? company? Yeah. But you know what? It was so empowering. And I think like, it's important to understand who you are. So like, again, for some of the, I'm making assumptions here, but like, there's some female reps, like one of them that I know personally, actually, she's really girly. She likes wearing pink things and pink shoes and everything. Like, 
you should own that. Don't be embarrassed about that. Right. I don't know. Like, I think, I think like, I think that people, I think that, um, a lot of like the wisdom of of life is figuring out who you are. And then once you realize who you are, just being that at scale. Yes. You know I mean, hundred percent or finding folks to like help tap into like what can make you more you is like the one that I love because I can foster myself in so many different areas. Um, another thing just to, to double down on like the conference where <laughs> I was also the person at Gardner's uh, chief sales officer conference in the bright green suit on stage. And so like, I'm definitely it. that person <laughs> with you. <laughs> And yeah, I also that's... was a person at graduation at college wearing a pink like feather boa on stage at like leading the mass. And so like, yeah, I a hundred percent agree with like be who you are and like sing to who you are because liturgy is a thing and I'm making it a thing. <laughs> and like <laughs> when people know me, they're like, yeah, that's a thing. But like, otherwise I can't, I can't even imagine myself falling default to who I used to be, but like it took a long time to get to where I am today because of like that. But I agree. Once you tap into who you are, it's more natural success that encounters you. You know, a hundred percent. And there's going to be some environments that who you are, does not work. And you, and you have right. to kind of come and it's not a bad thing either, by the way, like, look who I am, my personality, everything. I'm not, a Johnson and Johnson guy or a yeah. Medtronic, like it just, I'm not a fit for those companies. Those companies aren't a fit for me and that's okay. I think too many times people, they demonize organizations or places Well, depending on what it's like, like, you know, if it's like a douchey all boys club, like uh, that's not cool, yeah. but, but there's just some places that it's just like, it's not a fit for you. Right. Yeah. Like for example, I don't think it's a fit for me to go and sell, you know, like there's certain like all female uh, sales forces that sell female products that ain't like, I'm not going to be contributing much to that. Like, I just, it's just not a place for me, you know? Yeah. I don't, maybe I, I, you know, like, like women, women like me. I mean, I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a fun time, <laughs> you know? I always joke like, like, what's that? I said, there's always a niche in the market. There's, yeah, there's always a niche in the market. But, but yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting that like in 2023, we still have to worry about stuff like this. You know what I mean? I don't think it will ever go away. I think it's the same type of conversation that exists in the market today around race, race and diversity, right? Or ethnicity and diversity. It's like, we don't want to see the all white man panel and we all don't want to cringe to be the person that points it out. But like, it exists so many times, like more than others. And so, yeah, like I love being the bold person that points it out. And I usually have the credibility to do so in most cases, but like, it's also just letting people be aware because that's how you gain allies like yourself of like, Hey, if I didn't like this, again, this was supposed to be a rapid fire question, but like, listen, if oh, I did yeah, what I did, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's one of those things that it's like, it's also really important to take advantage of when things are asked to you to bring up certain issues. Cause like I could have answered that question in 50 different ways. Right. But like, the number one thing that pivoted my career off of feedback that I got being good, bad, or ugly, it was that unfortunate and fortunately for me, because it like almost quadrupled my income yearly, but like, like it was necessary. But in, in a weird way, it, it sets you on a path of discovery and reaffirming who you are. Yeah. And that, that's who you want to be. You know, yeah. 
And sometimes we're like not comfortable enough to like make the change for ourselves, And so like the universe kind of pushes us in that way. But I totally, yeah, agree. totally. I totally oh, agree. Oh, a hundred percent. Wow. That was, that was the longest rapid fire question I ever asked. But I, <laughs> I was like, why did you think the person that isn't like the short answer queen? <laughs> no, no, that's my fault though. I love it though. All right. We'll do, we'll do a couple others. Uh, this one's an easier one. I promise, which is like, what's, what's a, what's a, a lot of sales rep. They're always looking for a book or a podcast or something. We'll start with a book. Is there a book that you, that oh. you felt like helped you a lot in your sales career? I have it right here because I literally reference it every ten wait, seconds. Can I wait? Don't pull it out. Can I guess? Can I guess? Because <laughs> yeah, you're not gonna guess. I'm not your typical rep. <laughs> what, what's What's the color of the book? Wait. Okay. I have three, but like, there's only one of them that's like a sales book, and I have there's actually two. Like the other one, I I reference less more than this one, but like I go between two. This one's red. It's red. And it's not a sales book. It is a sales book. This one is a sales book. Is a challenger sale? It's not challenger sale. Oh, dang it! All right, I got one more. That is one is on the top of my. That's that one's on the top of mine. But like, I listen to that more of an audio version versus like. Yeah. And okay. like. Is this an older book? Um, that's actually a good question. Tell me the copyright on it. Now I'm just trying to impress my audience with my ability to like, you know. <laughs> yes, libraries. Um, copyright 2005. This one's Ooh. an edited 2023 version, though, of a 2005. Oh, that's a... Uh, Which, like, man. the 2023 thing is a really big thing because this is, like, a post-pandemic version of a 2005 sales methodology. So, like... Oh, God. Um, is it Conversations That Win the Complex Sale? No. No. Okay, what is it? Lynn Powers, tell us what the book is. Okay, it's the... It's the little red book of selling. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna pick that one. It's such a popular. How did I? I should. You know what? This is a great lesson to audience. Always go with your first intuition. That's I was like, so no, that's funny. too obvious. That's a, no, that's a great one. So you got the. Two, I didn't know there's a 2023 updated one. I didn't know that. Yeah. So this one is like a different. Like it's it's kind of like edited principles on it, but um. For those of you who don't know about this book, it's like a Wall Street Journal bestseller, New York Times bestseller. It's like one of the most popular sales books. Yeah. It's so, but it so gets you back to basics. So most of the times I'm like in the weeds of like my crazy strategies and like all of these like weird creative things that I do. This one like helps me bring it back down to like, okay, do you have a deal? Like, And if you have a deal, what are the milestones that you should be like aware of or what is the approach that you're taking with it? So um. It also talks a lot about like creativity plus science, which I think is a key mm. to any sales methodology is like, it has to be a little bit of art and a little bit of science. Otherwise, like we don't really know what we're doing. <laughs> um, so that's, so, that's my so one. Little, little red book of selling. And, and then the second one, if I had to go with the second one, it would be yeah. the spin selling by Neil Rockman. Um, I was going to guess, but like, I have to say like when I did my 12 day miracle cycle, that was the one book that I was like, okay, forget every slide that I ever created in my lifetime. Like this deal is so special. Like, what do I need to do to win? That book made me think of the sale from a procurement landscape and not from like a pre-sales landscape of like, as a customer, what do I care about? And so it's just a reframe mindset and that one helps me reframe the little uh, red book of selling helps me think objectively. So 
depending mm-hmm. on like where I am from like a give me ideas. Like those are the things. And then um, self plug the run revenue podcast only because I sell Clary and like hearing about executives and how they it's listen. To to yeah. Like how they, how they are thinking about their go-to-market strategy, how they're growing. Like those are really good ones. Um, totally. By the way, when you were, when you were checking the copyright, but because you said it was published in 2005, I'm like, Oh, it's not spin. Cause spin selling was, I think in the 78, I think. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. And then you, sorry, I cut you out. Do you have one more? Um, the other one is, uh, play bigger is, I think it's, Oh like- yeah. By, by uh, Lockett. Lockett was on my show a while back. Yeah. So I love that book because it helps me reframe my mindset to how others would sell in just like generally speaking, not specific to me. And so I like to think of myself sometimes as like the CEO of my territory or like, if you were to get a lit experience of Clary, like what is the difference between that and any other seller that you would come across? And so I like that one because it makes me think of myself as a CEO and not as a seller. <laughs> yeah, no, no, totally. It's, it's a big theme in our, in our industry. I mean, uh, just like, Side note, I actually, I should think like, what's my favorite sales book? Cause I have, I have so, so many. So like, there's like two shelves of them, but I have a thing of buying like old, like sales books. Okay. There's sales books that are in the like early 1900s are really good, but the sales books from like the late seventies through the nineties are like wild. And I love the cover art. So I, I kind of love collecting like old sales books. Oh. One of my oldest sales mentors, I tell him every Christmas, he has to send me a book. Otherwise, I think he's dead because he's like a super old scholar. <laughs> and so every year I get like the wildest, crazy old school books from like sales land. Otherwise, I wouldn't have any of these that are on my shelf. Um, so also, if you're looking to like get sticky with a mentor, that's a really good one. Is that's Christmas. smart. Like send, <laughs> send me a book for Christmas so I know you're alive. Yeah. yeah. No, I'll tell you, there's one one set of books. Actually, actually flipped through them but there's a guy named do you know have you heard of joe gerard i think so yeah joe gerard okay so joe gerard holds the guinness book of world's records like greatest salesman because he sold cars and like in 1970 or 1980s i forgot what year it was he sold 1200 uh cars himself that's crazy like he was a machine it was insane i love people like that i'm such a volume seller too i love that I know, seriously, seriously, Lynn. Uh, look, especially at you know your you, end of your day and, and you're busy. I really appreciate you coming on on the show. Definitely gonna have to have you back. You know, we have a Presence Club series. So I want to have you back and talk about some Presence Club stories. But real quick, where can people find you? Especially this is a Clary sponsored episode, so like, yeah, where where can the companies who want to implement Clary and actually learn how to predict and run revenue? Where can they find you? Yes. So go to clary.com and look up how Clary can help you with your revenue cadences. Um, If you want to look for me specifically, you can look on LinkedIn, um, Lynn Powers, um, like Austin Powers, I love to say L-Y-N-N. And one of the big things that I'm a huge proponent of LinkedIn for is just being able to network with other like-minded folks and be able to share stories where I think they matter most. And so big person on um, just Asian Pacific networking as well. I am a first gen American as are you. And so, um, connecting with folks that are like-minded, not only in like a professional atmosphere, but like ethically for me to stay diverse and up to speed on what's happening in that realm, like is another really good place. So 
find me on LinkedIn. Um, and then also, again, just plugging Women in Revenue. If you are a woman in revenue or if you are a strong ally, we would love um, for you to join as a member. And Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll plug, I'll plug it in the show notes. Well, that's been another episode of the State of MedTech. Give Lynn a follow. And don't forget, if you're a follower of this podcast, hey, give us five stars and write a review. That's why we're the number one show in MedTech. I'm trying to go for that number one show in medicine. Andrew Huberman, Peter Atia, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for your lunch. All right. We'll see you all next time. Bye for now. Thank you for enjoying another epic episode of the State of MedTech. If you're feeling inspired and love this episode, do us a favor, hit that subscribe button and turn notifications on so you never miss an episode. And be sure to give us five stars and write a short review because that helps more people discover this amazing community of ours. If you're a company who has a executive that you'd like to be on the show or perhaps you want to sponsor one of the episodes, shoot us an email at hello at Take care and we'll see you next time.